It is time <laughs> to roll, and uh, we are grateful for uh, this opportunity. Um, Scott, would you pray um, for us and, um, and our discussion about the Lord's Supper? What a fantastic opportunity uh, to learn and grow um, from, from this study. And, uh, oh, before we do, next week, uh, Lord willing, we will have Sunday school in the choir room uh, instead of in here. For one week only, uh, the choir room on 1 Corinthians 12, if you like to study up 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to um, um, migrate over to the choir room instead. But Scott, would you pray for us and we'll go? Sure. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we're, we're thankful for this time where we can gather in the gym here and we can open up your word. We can uh, discuss this Grudem book on doctrine and uh, what a privilege this is. I pray you'd give us all wisdom up here as we discuss uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, Holy Communion, uh, and I pray that really we would come away today uh, with a greater appreciation for the Lord's Supper, uh, just to see the privilege uh, that we get uh, once a month at our church to be able to celebrate this together uh, communally uh, as a church family. It's just been fun to study this, this week and uh, just so thankful that we have these two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and how uh, baptism so powerfully pictures our union with Christ, and then we have this wonderful reminder of, of the gospel when we come to the Lord's Supper. Of, we're, we're confronted with Christ's uh, broken body and shed blood. Uh, I just pray that uh, we would come away with uh, a greater thanksgiving for communion, and uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Somehow I'm 55 years old and have missed the uh, connection between um, God's revelation in the Old Testament concerning the Lord's Supper as, as well. Would you guys address that? That was early on in Grudem here. Um, and then maybe we can get on to some other things, but would someone want to talk about that and just the, uh, where this isn't a brand new New Testament idea in, in some ways? Yeah, I mean, we don't want to forget that the Lord's Supper is obviously built out of a Passover meal. That's so obvious, but you can sometimes forget that, honestly. And so the, the Passover background is deliberate by Jesus, uh, clearly, and uh, as, as probably we all know, uh, God's judgment is coming. They, they take a spotless lamb. No bones of the lamb are broken. They kill the lamb. They actually eat the lamb, but they take the blood of the lamb, put it over the doorpost of the home. And that night, the angel of death passes over. The firstborn son of each family is not killed, it, it, for those who have done that uh, the right way. And Jesus, celebrating that Passover meal, then transfers that or changes it really into a meal about himself. He is the true lamb without spot or blemish. And just like John's gospel tells us, not, a, not one of his bones was broken on the cross. That Scripture reference is from the Passover meal about that lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of that lamb without broken bones, and we apply His blood to our hearts. So, a very strong connection, obviously, between Passover and the Lord's table. Good. And on the bottom of 387, you see that Exodus 24, Deuteronomy uh, 14. Any thoughts on that, Papa? I'm sorry, what page did you say? Uh, bottom of the first page there, oh, 387. Yeah. Um, so, from Genesis to Revelation, he says that God's aim has been to bring his people into fellowship with himself. And one of the great joys of experiencing that fellowship is the fact that we can eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, you know, the amazing thing about this is we're, we're talking about something that happened, what, 3,500 years ago? Uh, uh, the Passover. And God was very specific to Moses about how they would celebrate that. And it was all about the delivering the um, 
children of Israel from slavery. And, 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 and there's a direct connection to delivering us from slavery, slavery to sin with the new covenant. And that's the connection you're talking about, Jerry. And we can't escape that. And it's almost like, as far as our Lord is concerned, it's a seamless transition. Yeah. But we have to dig a little bit to, to get the connection, I think, sometimes. Nice. Uh, in, in Exodus 24, 8, I think we talked about this, Mark. Uh, uh, we, don't, we don't necessarily go there, but it's Moses, uh, the blood of the covenant is, is mentioned. Uh, he, Moses took the blood and, and, and threw the blood on the people to ratify that, the Passover. Uh, and, and then in this new, new covenant, uh, in, I'm using Matthew's text, Matthew 26, uh, the blood of the covenant. There's only two, three places actually in Scripture where that blood of the covenant is mentioned. Is one in Exodus, one in Zechariah referring to the coming messianic king and now in um, Matthew 26. So there's, a, there's definitely a connection. And it, it is so connected that by the time of Jesus that they, um, the, the Jews had developed a, a, they actually called it Seder, a Passover ritual, which Jesus would have participated in uh, in, in the first century, uh, that night, that fateful night on Thursday night. And in and, and the four cups they used in that meal comes from Exodus 6, 6. And it's, it, it's God's promise all over again. And, and it almost makes the hair stand up on the back of your head. Says, I will bring you out. That's sanctification. Um, if, you, if you want to turn to Exodus 6, 6. I will free you, deliverance. Uh, I will redeem you, redemption. And I will take you as my own people. And, and, and that's another uh, form uh, talking about adoption. So it's just, it's exciting to talk about. It's exciting to develop. And, and, and every time I do this, I learn something, just like you, Jerry. Yeah, yes, sir. Thought, Scott? Yeah, I, I just think something more that you, you had said when we went through this, but Phil Riken said, sharing the Lord's Supper is a powerful symbol of our unity and community in Christ. Like Passover, the Lord's Supper is a meal to be shared, a tangible demonstration of our community in Christ, something just we tend, to think, we tend to think of it like as an individual act, like communion. But really, it's the communal aspect of it. And I don't know, Mark, if you want to talk about that somewhere. Really, it's when you gather as a church. Paul says that in First Corinthians, I guess it's eleven, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not to be taken like individually. I don't think. I think it is this communal aspect of communion. Uh, is a, it's a powerful something we just neglect. I think, and I think we just think it's me and Jesus. But really, no, it's it's a picture of our sort of community aspect and, and how we're united in Christ, family of Christ. Is that you? You want to go on that one? Yeah, let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And this is obviously a very familiar passage on this topic, but it is, it is so important, and it, a lot is here for us to learn about communion. And really, you're seeing the abuse of communion, the misuse of communion by the Corinthian church. If you've been reading, if, if you remember 1 Corinthians, Paul will often say, you know, uh, you're doing this right, but here, let me correct you on this. Or, you know, you've, you've got this going for you, but let me, let me kind of nuance it and clarify this here. And he keeps going back and forth. Well, you're right in saying this, but you're not quite right in saying this. When he gets to communion, he says, I've got nothing to commend you on this topic at all. 
You guys have wrecked communion so badly, you're no longer eating the Lord's Supper when you come together. One, gets, one goes hungry, a poor person comes for this communal meal, and they don't have enough food to eat, and they go hungry. Another person, a rich person, abuses alcohol and gets drunk. And this is supposed to be the Lord's table that you're partaking of? This is supposed to show our equality and unity in Christ, and you're making the poor person starve during the meal, and the rich person's getting drunk. This is nothing like the Lord's Supper. You've, you're no longer actually participating. So Paul just lets them have it on this topic because he's I've got nothing positive to say about your use of the Lord's Supper. So, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse uh, 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, just stop there. Can you imagine a church service with communion that is so detrimental and so sinfully carried out that Paul says it would have been better for you never to have gotten together today? than to have gotten together and done what you called the Lord's Supper, but was really not. That's how bad their gathering was at this moment. It'd be better not to even do it. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, so you see, here's the unity, right? It's supposed to be. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. That's the individual part. You're you're neglecting everybody else. One goes hungry, probably a poor person. Another gets drunk, probably a rich person. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing, the poor person? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So j- just real quick on this, the corporate aspect, he keeps saying it over and over. When you come together as a church, when you come together, he keeps saying it over and over. The, the context for the Lord's table is when the church is gathered locally. That, that's the context for the Lord's table. The reason I say this is, is not to so much mock, but, but to bring clarity on this issue. It, it has not been uncommon to hear about, you know, Four guys go camping in the woods, and they've got like some Pringles, and they got their they got their whatever they got their diet coke, and they're like, hey, let's do let's do the Lord's supper here at the campfire, and they get their Pringles out, and that's the body of Christ, and they get their they get their whatever their diet coke out, and that's the blood of Christ, and they 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 talk about this passage, and they repent of sin, and they pass the elements around, and they partake of the Lord's table, and and I'm saying, wait 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 wait, Paul says when you come together as a church. That's when this is supposed to be happening. And very often, people want to isolate the Lord's table and take it apart from the local gathering of the church. And I think that has become extremely popular. I don't think it is biblical. And I can really… I don't want to… People can get uncomfortable to even talk, because we all know people have done… But just even at a wedding or whatever it may be, where bride and groom, the first act is to take the Lord's Supper, or it might be a small group that takes the Lord's Supper with a few people present in a living room or whatever it may be, I am, I am just increasingly uncomfortable with taking it outside of the context of the, of the local church. When you come together as a church, symbolizing the unity of the whole body around one bread and one cup in the sense of one table of elements, that, that sim- symbolism of unity I think is significant, and this has to do with, with the gathered uh, Church of, of, of God. May I ask you a question? Uh, you talked about the marriage context, and I'm sure there's probably people in, in, that have done both uh, in our audience as well. It's not as, the unforgivable listen, sin. That's not the unforgivable <laughs> sin. That's right. But, but in a way, in the marriage thing, uh, you know, provided it's given to everybody, but typically it's just given to the right. people. You know, if it's given to the church as a body in these 
this couple are they're members of the church, that's one thing. Right. But when they're just the two of them, I mean, it's nice and it fits the, the Hallmark model, I guess, of a wedding ceremony, but it doesn't necessarily fit this community, the unity of believers. Yes, and that's, again, where Scott's saying we, we sort of individualized it as a personal spiritual experience. Well, clearly, it is a personal spiritual experience. We're repenting of sin. We're, we're putting our trust afresh in Christ. That is very personal. But the corporate part is essential to what it is. It is an essential element to, to what it is. And so, um, I think that's one of Paul's big emphases in this, in this section. Can you guys help us with, I know growing up, um, it was a very solemn event. And I think in a lot of ways, rightly so. In which ways should it be a celebration, if you will, and in which ways should it be solemn? Is there a balance there as to how... I, we wouldn't want to miss it either way, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we talked about this when we went through First Corinthians 11, but uh, I mean, growing up with my dad is one of the things, again, we, we was indelible, like indelible printed upon us that my dad took it so seriously. I mean, he took it about as seriously as anybody I've ever seen take mm-hmm. communion. Even starting the week of communion, he even had like a sharper edge against his sin. Like he was just very intentional about preparing for communion Sunday and on the day especially. I mean, I, I never forget that time. I was sitting very close that day. I usually sit in the back, but I think there was no seats, and my friend and I sat very close <laughs> to the front. I was sitting right there, and they played a song that was a very lighthearted song, and people clapped, and my dad just shut it down. He said, now is not the time or the place. It was just like, whoa, I mean, the weight of it. So there is that weight. Like, there should be this serious thing about preparing. I think it even goes, like, examining yourself. It should be pretty much the day before, probably. You should be thinking about it ahead. So often we don't. We just get, oh, communion's here. We haven't thought about it. So there is a weight to it. But I think there should be this, it's like this, you're, you're pulling the rope on two sides. There should be this incredible joy. And the, the story that I think I told before, uh, one of my closest friends growing up uh, was tough as nails. Mark, you know exactly who I'm talking about. He went to the Marine Corps, just uh, man's man type of guy. He told me that he hadn't cried since he was like five or six years old when one of his pets died. That's the last time he had cried. Now he's in his 20s. He hadn't cried, you know, over a decade. He gets converted. He, he believed in the reality of hell as much as anybody I've ever met. He knew he deserved hell. And then God saved him through Spurgeon. I think he just, the grace of God in Spurgeon, like so powerfully emphasizing the gospel, was just this fresh water washing over him. He's converted. And I think it was the first time he took communion. Uh, after his conversion, he came and he just wept. He just broke down weeping because of the, the joy of coming to the table. You see this, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. You're confronted with the gospel. And I think it just was such a powerful moment for him that he wept. And, I, and Sproul talks the same kind of story where Sproul yeah. said he couldn't wait to get to the table that particular Sunday. And he said he cried for 10 minutes. He said he was embarrassed. He had to cover his face. But there's this it's the two sides of it. There should be solemnity, but there should be the tremendous joy uh, coming to the table. Like, it's like this, Ferguson says, like this love token from Jesus. Like, I, I love you. It's a reminder. I shed my blood for you. I broke my body for you. Here's this reminder of my love for you. So I think it's that double, double-sided. And, uh, with that, I, I don't want us to think that, and I don't think anyone here does think this, but weightiness and gravity is not the opposite of joy. Uh, happiness might be sort of a little more fleeting, a little more ephemeral, a little bit more on the surface, but, but the more biblical sense of joy, true happiness in the Lord, that goes with a sense of gravity and weight. So, so, I mean, when you're thinking about sin and hell and Christ's bloody death and like His love for you, that should move you to joyful tears. Those two things should go together. The, the sense that He loves me and look what I deserve and look what He did for me, like that mingling of, of weight, tears, and joy should not be opposites in the Christian life. I think they, they go together perfectly, and it's not… You know, some, sometimes you can sort of do a mock mimicry of, happy, of happiness or joy just kind of with like 
like, it kind of feels, you know, superficial and kind of silly little stuff going on. But no, this is true joy mixed with the, with the weight. And I think those things, uh, that's what the Lord's table should have. You know, I just thought about something as you were talking, too. Uh, when the children of Israel observed the first Passover, um, that was symbolic. That was a covering of the forgiveness. They were not forgiven of their sins. We, through the new covenant, are forgiven of our sins, which Jesus says in Matthew 26 and Luke and, and Mark and so on. So that's even more reason why this is really serious business, yeah. to be forgiven. And, and this is a reminder of that. And, and we're so slow, we need remembrance. Yeah, but both of the ordinances of God, we talked about last week, communion, and this week, the Lord's table. Communion, is, I mean, what did I say? Baptism. Baptism. <laughs> Sorry. Communion, the Lord's table. Baptism last week, communion this week. Those are the two ordinances that Christ has commanded of the church. Both of them are about us doing a physical thing that relates to His death for us. So the baptism, we're buried with Him, we're raised symbolically with Him. The Lord's table, it's His body and blood. So, and Jesus keeps saying, remember, do this as often as you remember. This is meant to help us not forget the gospel. That's the whole point of communion is to, is to not go too long without having a vivid physical, something you can taste, pick up, touch. You, you, can, you can taste this, you, you eat this, you consume it. It is meant to be a physical reminder of what Christ did. That's great. There's four. He starts here on... Uh page 388, with the meaning of the Lord's Supper, and uh, can you guys help us with those first four there? Christ's death, the participation in the benefits of His death, spiritual nourishment, and then the unity of believers. We've touched on those a little bit. Anything on uh, any of those four? I mean, I'll just mention the Christ's death part again. Uh, just what you're saying, Mark, about I, this what struck me this week is we have baptism and the Lord's Supper, and baptism we're confronted with, like, our union with Christ. And I think you said that, you know, we go down in the waters and then we're raised to new life, but it's because, the reason why we can be raised is because Christ drowned under the wrath of God. So you have this powerful picture. You, you, you should wash yourself in the good news of being joined to Jesus. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper, where it's the same thing. We're confronted, you know, with Christ's death for us. And it's just such a gift to us. I just feel the privilege of it, I think, after studying it this week. And I think Ferguson said, you know, you're baptized once, uh, real baptism, I guess, once, even though he's infant baptism. But he said, then you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Like, if, you, if you're a Christian for 50 years, you would celebrate it 600 times if you're doing it once a month. I mean, hundreds of times you have it where you're confronted again and again and again because he doesn't want us to forget. And Carson just said, you know, we of all people should never forget. Like, we've had our sins forgiven. We have new life in Christ. Uh, eternal life ahead of us. And he said, but we, we do forget. And so, but Jesus instituted this so we would come back to the gospel over and over. I just think, what a gift it is. That to, we, we are confronted once again with my sin, but with, with our forgiveness. So I'm just, I'm so thankful for the privilege that we get to celebrate these, these two or watch it. You, you're baptized once, but then you get to watch it. And then you, the Lord's Supper once a month for us. What a privilege. Didn't take it for granted. I think one of the um, revelations, I guess, that that I've appreciated relatively recently in my life is the, the um, eschatological implications. Um, uh, Grudem even mentions that on page 388. Uh, uh, these are Jesus' actual words and actually in, in Matthew uh, 26 as well. Um, um, boy, man, I'm on Corinth in Corinthians, excuse me. Let me go back to my Matthew's passion, Matthew passions. And uh, he says, well, I'll find it. 
Here we go. Matthew 29, right? His blood of the covenant, which is poured out many, for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, some commentators say he drank the fourth cup, and some say he's reserving the fourth. That doesn't really matter. What he's saying, I'm not going to do this again until you're with me, which is that last of the Exodus 6, 6 verses, I will take you to be my people. So he's promising us that he's going to take us home. You know, he's going back to the, back to the four cups. I will bring you out. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to take you to be my own people. And you're going to be with me forever. And, and I'm going to reserve at the wedding supper of the lamb, mm-hmm. this celebration. That's, that's pretty strong. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, oh, there's a lot. And so it should be a reminder of what he's done and what's coming, too, mm-hmm. to look forward. What in the past, what we're participating in, and then what's, what's forward. And, and interesting, interestingly enough, this in, in um, Exodus, in Exodus 6, it's the Hebrew past tense. He said, I will bring you out. But, but it's, 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 like, it's like the aorist tense in Greek. It's as it's good perfect. as done. It's as good as done. It's perfected. So it's already completed. He's already done that. And it's, we just have to look forward to it. Yeah. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says the same thing. For as often as you eat this bread, which is what you do right now in the present every time you do that, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, which is looking back to the past of what He did, until He comes in the future. So you've got the, the present. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking back to the past of His atonement. We're looking forward to His second coming, and we continue to take this meal until those two things connect, until, until we go from his, his resurrection to ultimately His second coming. That's really good. Anything else on uh, that maybe five to seven there, what this affirms? It affirms His love for us, uh, the blessings of salvation, and my faith in Christ. Even the, I mentioned this to affirm his love for you, and I think Ferguson said it's like on the wedding day when you give your ring to your spouse. He said that's sort of like what communion is. Jesus is giving this love token to us that way. Uh, so it's just, it is, can be this powerful picture of Christ's love for us. I mean, it is corporate, but there should be, the, again, that should be create this joy that he, he loves me, he died for me, like the son, son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You should come back to that in this, as you take it and be confronted and moved by, by that truth. Good. What, what isn't it? We, we run into um, like what the Roman Catholic view, the Lutheran view. Yeah. Can you help us in case we run into folks that would say, hey, wait a second here, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I, I, was at, uh, I, I got to see a debate uh, at my old college between an evangelical Protestant professor and a Roman Catholic priest who came in for the debate, and they were debating the Lord's Supper. So they're, they're debating which view is correct. And the Catholic priest... Uh, said, it's a long discussion as you can imagine, but the Catholic priest, his main point he kept coming back to was Jesus said, this is my body when he held up the bread. And then he held up the cup and said, this is my blood. How much more clearly could Jesus have said it? So as you know, the Catholic church's belief is transubstantiation, to change substance, transubstantiation. And the idea is that the, uh, that the, 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 the wine and the cup and that the, the bread or the wafer, that those things, while they are, are, were originally bread and wine, and they look like bread and wine, after the, the, the priest says, it used to be in the Latin mass, if you heard the phrase, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, 
which later became used by magicians, hocus pocus, if you know where that came from. So, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. And when the priest said it, it was like abracadabra. It was like suddenly the body and blood, that's why it became later uh, used by magicians. But when they said that magically, not magically, miraculously, they would say the, the elements, while they contain all the accidentals, the outward uh, visible taste and texture and touch of the wafer and the wine, but in reality, their, their essentials, their, 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 their substances have actually changed the physical body, uh, the physical flesh of Jesus and the physical blood of Jesus. And that when you eat the Lord's Supper at a Roman Catholic Mass, they would say that you are literally eating the literal body, not metaphor of Jesus. And the literal, not metaphor, blood of Jesus you are drinking, that's why you can't throw the wine out at the end of the service. It has to be drunk entirely by the priest. At the end, he'll often finish the, the wine because you can't throw that away. What if you put it, pour it down the drain? You just poured Jesus' blood down the drain. And so, th those are literally his body and blood. And the idea is that you literally are consuming the grace of God physically, and that that's one of the things that keeps you in a state of saving grace really throughout your life as a Catholic. That's why the Catholic Mass is such an important part of their service. Well, what, what do you say to the Catholic who says, Jesus said, this is my body, and held up the bread? This is my blood, held up the cup. And, and, you know, maybe this is a little bit snarky, but a response could be, Jesus also said, I'm the door, right? I, I'm the door. I, I, you could just, a lot, of, a lot of the I am statements Jesus said, you wouldn't take literally. He's not literally a door. It's a me metaphorical use of the word. And anybody who was at the table with the, with, the, with the disciples that night, Jesus hasn't even died yet. Who is actually thinking? that that bread is his literal body. Who is actually thinking the, water, the, the wine is his actual blood? He hasn't even died yet. No, of course he's speaking in metaphor. Obviously, Jesus spoke in metaphor all the time. When he says things like, I am the vine, you are the branches, you're not literally branches. He's not literally a vine. It's a metaphor. Jesus uses them all the time. Well, clearly, the, the, just this is obviously symbolic. The bread represents his body. The, the wine represents his blood. Well, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, took a big step away from transubstantiation and as much as we love Luther, we wish he would have taken two steps away because the, the view he had was consubstantiation, which means consubstantiation means that, okay, just hang with me for a second here. So, we believe Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's truly deity and he's truly humanity, right? Two, two natures in one person, the hypostatic union. Okay, one, I think what Luther, and, and uh, I, I, with fear and trembling, do I disagree with such a man, but I, I disagree with Luther. Uh, Luther, I think, had a confusion here between the, what, is, what is capable of Jesus' physical bodily presence and his presence as deity. So, so hang on. His, as touching his divine nature, Jesus is omnipresent. He is everywhere present because he's divine. Touching his humanity, his human body is not omnipresent. It's a human body that cannot be in all places at one time. It is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But He is not bodily present at all places at all times because that would not be true humanity. Does that make sense? So, Luther argued that when you take the Lord's Supper, they, the elements do not literally become the body and blood of Jesus. He rejected transubstantiation. But he argued that Jesus was bodily present, that His body was present under, above, beside, and between the particles in the bread and wine. So although the bread and wine, he technically said it wasn't his body and blood, he said that there was a sense in which he was literally physically around the elements, consubstantiating them. He was in and around them, in and above and between and beside. And when you ate them, there was a sense in which he was bodily present in that way. And again, uh, I, 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 I lo we love Luther here, but I think he's, he's wrong on that. I think that's a misunderstanding of the, of the human nature of Christ. So we, we don't take either of those views. We, we take the more Zwinglian view, which is the symbolic view. So I believe God is spiritually truly present all the time with His people by His Spirit, and He's certainly present during the Lord's Supper. Obviously, He is he's present with us at all times. I'm surely with you always to the end of the age. But the elements are symbolic of His body and symbolic of His blood. He is not 
physically present in any way in those elements when we take the Lord's Supper. That in no way makes the Lord's table less serious. Not at all. God still struck dead some of the members of the Corinthian church for abusing the Lord's table later in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. So it's, it's by no means not a serious thing, but it is not a bodily presence of Jesus. I wanted to mention this too. Um, on page 390, about uh, two-thirds uh, of the way down the page, they mention a guy named uh, Ludwig Ott, and, and he is the Catholic version of Grudem or someone's written a systematic theology. And on that second or the third quote there, he says, uh, the bottom part of it, the Eucharistic sacrifice of propitiation can, as the Counselor Trent expressly asserted, be offered not merely for the living, but also for the poor souls in purgatory. So, I mean, that, and, they, and the Catholic Church still believes in, in purgatory. That, that's a place of purging, that if you're not ready for heaven, then you go there for a couple hundred million years and, uh, and are purged and eventually prepared for it. And this is a view of the Council of Trent back in um, 1600 and some change, and is still true today. Yeah, that's official Catholic teaching that's on that, right. Doctor. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And wouldn't you say that we would really disagree with the idea that when Jesus said, it is finished, it truly was, was finished. finished. It, we do not need this sacrifice again and again and again because that's partly what the yeah, Catholic the, would believe. The, the atonement of Christ's death is represented, they will say it, yes. with that kind of language every time there is a Catholic Mass. Now, they, they, will, they will quibble about exactly what they mean by that, and I'm not sure all Catholics agree, but they would say he, his death is represented in a physical form every time you have the Mass, yeah. which is not, that's not true. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by, I won't read the whole thing, but for by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So that's us. It's finished, Jerry. Yeah. Uh, and that's such great news. And um, can you talk, any of you guys, help us to understand just, again, we saw it with the Corinthians, the seriousness of this and who should participate and who shouldn't. Mark, you do a good job of fencing the table, we call it. Help us to understand just um, why it is so serious about us to, Scott, like you're talking about your dad, um, come before the, the Lord's table with a real um, serious heart. If, if you're in 1 Corinthians 11 or if you're nearby, uh, let me just read the last part of that, for, starting in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, this is the serious part, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning uh, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many are of you are weak and ill and some have died or fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And there's a clear verse, right? When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Mm -hmm. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So clearly, this is as serious a thing as you can hear of, uh, God judging with death uh, some professing Christians who were taking communion uh, wrongly at the time. As, as far as who should take communion, th this is something we talked about before COVID. So, 
maybe two, two years ago, we, we talked about this, and we were kind of rolling out a plan to kind of move in a certain direction as a church, and then the plan was completely stopped by COVID, and then a year and a half went by, and, and we haven't talked about it since then. So now, now is a perfect time to bring this back up. And I, I know if, so, if someone has grown up and they've never heard this before, it can sound confusing and unsettling, like, wait, wait, what? I don't, what are you saying? But, but uh, the position we're moving towards as a church, and we we're not going to uh, bring this in this time around with new members. I think it'll be in about six months is when we'll officially make this part of our church policy, which it is not currently and won't be for a few more months. We're convinced the, the biblical way would be this for, for all these elements to go together. So just imagine someone's not a Christian and they become a Christian. They're 20 years old. Let's just take, take it. So here, here's an ideal biblical example. A 20-year-old, not a Christian, hears the gospel, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they repent, they believe, they're converted. The first public act they should do should be Baptism, right? So, so what they should do is they should come to a local church that preaches the Bible. Hopefully, they're, they're already going to a local church where they're hearing the gospel. They, they bring that before the church. They talk about their new conversion. The church kind of listens to their testimony, sees if it, if it shows some validity, if, if they understand the gospel. The church gives approval. Then the church recognizes them and brings them before them, and they're baptized. So they're converted, then they're baptized. At baptism, in this scenario, ideally, you would then join that church. Baptism should not be baptism into the ether, Baptism into nothingness. It should be baptism into commitment to a local church. So baptism should normally be engaged with, a, with membership in a local church. Let me footnote this. I know the Ethiopian eunuch is an exception to this. The Ethiopian eunuch was not heading to his church. He was heading back to Africa. That's an exceptional situation. And no doubt he would go back and try to start his own church there. So that, that would be, an, that would be an, a non-normal, a, not a normal situation. But in normal situations, you're an adult, you're converted, you are baptized, you enter into membership in the church, and then and only then, is the Lord's table uh, acceptable at that point? So that, that's a policy we've never actually said before, that only baptized members of faithful churches would be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. You even see that in the Passover meal. In the Passover meal, it says, listen, if you're not circumcised, you can't take the Passover. You, you've got to be a member of the people of God. At least, you, you've got to take on the, the sign of the people of God, which at that time was, was circumcision. You had to be brought in in that way to even take the, the Passover at the time. You had to be a, a member of the people of Israel to, take the, to take, take the Passover. And so, similarly speaking, we're convinced that conversion, baptism, membership, Lord's Supper is the proper way. And you say, wait, why would that even be true? And we could talk about that at more length at another time. But, but the re one reason I will just say is this. Imagine a, this is not out of the question this could happen. Imagine a Mormon shows up at our church and says, I'm a Christian. I want to take the Lord's Supper. We have no way to stop them, right? They, they just go, I, I, I'm a Christian. I, I, I decide for, everyone decides for themselves if they're a Christian or not. Well, I'm going to come forward and take the Lord's Supper. If they were to come and speak to the elders and say, I don't believe in the Trinity, can I take the Lord's Supper? We would say, you, you could not join our church and you could not take the Lord's Supper. Do you see that it's a safeguard with the Lord's table? Otherwise, someone could just show up and say, well, I mean, I, I'm a Christian, but there's no, there's no reason credibly to believe their testimony at all. They, they could deny the Trinity. They could be whatever. They could be Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, and they could come forward and take the Lord's table and return to their seat without any kind of guard there. So, biblically, also with that, church discipline involves removal from the Lord's table. That's always been true historically. That's, that's biblically, uh, that, that's also true. And uh, so, membership and the Lord's Supper are tied together, we would argue, in the New Testament. Talk about discipline. I mean… Um church discipline, Mark, in that context. I mean, how that works. I mean, if you're a member of the church, then you're subject to the bylaws and whatever of the church, which includes simple behavior. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the guy, we don't have to read it right now, but the guy in chapter 5 who is, who is removed from church membership at the church clearly is not going to be allowed to partake of the Lord's table. That, that would be self-evident. Uh, even the Catholic Church agrees with the Protestants on this. I mean, this, this has been universally recognized amongst everybody that, that, that membership in the Lord's table, uh, if you are removed from membership, you're not allowed at the Lord's table. I think that's been uh, throughout all of history. In fact, kings have been brought to their knees by popes. Who would, over church yeah, discipline, exactly. Been ex, or threatened with excommunication uh, when the church had all that power. So right. Oh, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I was just thinking if we could maybe give uh, practical tips on the, the self-examination aspect and sort of if we're, you're at odds with somebody or if you're living in sin, like what should somebody do in those two cases? Because it's such a huge part of this that we should examine ourselves. We shouldn't go when we're in sin. Any, th- any thoughts on practically what you should do uh, in the self-examination process? Maybe you think, oh, you're, you're, you're frustrated with somebody in the church. Any thoughts on that practically? I'm looking to you on that one, Mark. <laughs> well, it, it, put it this way. If a, if a Christian, a Christian can commit sin. Christian cannot unrepentantly sin, but a Christian can sin. If a Christian is at church and they are, they are in a really, uh, because of their own sin, they have severed a relationship in their life because of their own sin. Uh, you know, Paul said, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We cannot always make peace with people. Paul could not always make peace with people. Okay, so the question is, if I have separated a relationship because of my personal sin, uh, like Jesus says in Matthew 5, uh, if, if, you're, if you're going to make an offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. That's just talking about Old Testament worship, but it would apply pr- in the principle to communion. So if, if I have sinned against a, a believer and I've destroyed our relationship, I need to restore that and do everything I can to restore that before partaking of the Lord's table. Also, if, if, if in your heart you, you either are committing a sin or you are determined to commit a sin in the future, you're saying, when I get home, I'm going to lie to somebody. I'm going to do this or that. I'm going to do whatever. I, I'm, I, I am, in my secret heart, I am determined I'm going to sin in some way after church. Absolutely, you should not take communion. That, that would be to eat and drink judgment on yourself because you are lying when you partake of the Lord's table. The Lord's table is saying, I am repentantly coming to the Lord and receiving His forgiveness. And if I'm not repenting, when I act like I'm repenting, I'm lying by taking the elements. That is to, to eat and drink judgment. That, that is to partake them in an unworthy manner. So it's not that we, we are sinless. When we, none of us is sinless. The question is, are we repentant when we come before the Lord's table? That's the question. If I'm locked into a secret sin, like when David's with Bathsheba and trying to cover that up for a few months, if he, they didn't have communion then, but if they had communion during that time and he was taking communion while lying about Bathsheba, that would be to add horrific sin on top of horrific sin. That, that would be an unacceptable uh, thing to do. And he would have been eating and drinking additional judgment on, on himself. So uh, I, I think the issue is, are we truly repentant? Are, are our hands open uh, uh, with, with our sins? And that's what, that's what it means by let a person examine it himself. Yes. Mm-hmm. What if someone has a beef against us? And, you know, and it's <laughs> one of those situations where you've done what you could. Would you still feel good? Would, would you take communion? Then? But then Paul never would have taken communion. Right. Because he had hundreds of people who hated him for the whole of his Christian life. Every city he went into, he had a whole group of people trying to kill him. So if it had to be perfect harmony in all relationships, no one would take communion probably. So I, I think it's as long as it, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think that principle would have to be applied to that, to that kind of thing. If you do everything you can to reconcile and the person says, I don't care, I'm not going to reconcile. I don't think you're trapped from the Lord's table for the rest of your life. I, I think at that point, you've done what you can do, and it's not, that would be their sin, not your sin at that point. Yeah, good. Scott, anything? Yeah, just one quote. I, I shared this before, but this pastor just said, uh, what did he say? He said, if, if one is afflicted by sin, so if like sin is bothering you, he said the, the, the supper is comfort. But he said, if an individual is comfortable with sin, the supper is affliction. I thought that was just so good, the two, the two mindsets. You say that one more time. Yeah, that's great. I like that. If one is afflicted by sin, 
The, su- the supper is comfort. So your sin is bothering you. You're, you're repentant. It's, it's comfort. But if an individual is comfortable with sin, the supper is affliction. Mm. Just helpful to, in a, one sentence to kind of get, get that idea there. No, that is really good. How often, you know, there's churches that, and, and biblical churches, that take communion every week. We do it once a month. Um, other churches, I, I think completely biblical churches, would do it once a quarter. Um, Maybe, why, Mark, can you help us to decide why do we do it once a month? Why not more often? Why not less often? How do, how do we go about deciding what would be right? Yeah, I remember R.C. Sproul being asked to figure this, this out, and he went to do research. He said, man, that was a hard assignment because he said there isn't a clear answer. So the Bible never commands how often you are to do communion. That's important to hear that, that there is no verse that says you should have communion every week or every month or wh- whatever it is. But the early church, I think the, the evidence, I think you can make a good case that Weekly communion was not uncommon in the early church. I think you can make a, a good case in Acts that there was communion happening on a frequent basis in the, in the early church. So weekly communion was probably pretty normal in the early church. Uh, my text today, there's communion, I think, in Acts 20 uh, in just a few minutes. We'll talk about that. But uh, I think it was regular. I think that uh, we've chosen once a month. I mean, partly, Fred, we've talked about how wanting to keep it special and sacred in a certain sense. Uh, there's, a, there's a danger of a routine aspect to having it every week, so you, you could debate. We could make it a, a ritual and every, right. every Sunday, and then after a while, it would be just a ritual. I think I, I really look forward to the once a month. Now, if we went once a quarter, that's not, in my opinion, that's not enough. Yeah, and it, there, there's a certain subjective element here. I do, I do also start to feel strange when it's less than once a month. When, when, it, when it's once a quarter, in some churches it's twice a year, once a year. I'm like, oh, that, the New Testament, it's, it's clearly a much more normal part of church life than, than once or twice a year. I think you can say that. Safe. Well, also, too, if, if, if you use it as, as a chance for your own examination and repentance and that type of thing, you need it yes. frequently. Yes. Now, whether that's once a week or once a month, that's you know, up to the church. But so. Good. Any final thoughts? Well, we could talk about so many different aspects of this. I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is ancient. It is current. It is... Uh, past, present, future. Uh, it's, it's part of our life as a Christian. And it's, it's a joy. I mean, that's, that's another term for uh, Eucharist or communion. It's a joyful occasion because it's the body of Christ coming together to celebrate Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and our forgiveness of sins. And that's amazing. Yeah, sure is. Papa, could you thank the Lord and close this? Father, I, I will just use that word. It's not a word we particularly use, but that Eucharistic word, it means joy. It means a celebration. And, and, and I think that was the, the intent, uh, really, from uh, going back to the, uh, the law and, and the exodus and, and the delivery. Uh, it had to be exciting uh, to be delivered from slavery. It had to be uh, a celebration, a relief. Uh, you read the pages of Exodus and the uh, events following the, the plagues uh, in Egypt and then the uh, children of Israel walking free with uh, uh, booty from the uh, Egyptian people and then uh, being delivered through the uh, Red Sea with a wall of water and separated out as a people. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful, wonderful story. 
uh, part of the part of the ritual the Lord is is that that Seder meal because there was a uh, part of it was called a Haggadah where you'd tell the story you'd retell the story and we have a real real story to tell when we take communion of what it's about and that's why that's another reason why Lord that that we feel like that that non-believers and non-church members should or unbelievers I guess should not partake because it's a joy that they can't understand, they can't participate in, they can't appreciate. And looking forward, Lord, it's looking forward to that unity, that time with you when we're going to be forever with you in the pages of Revelation and the wedding supper of the Lamb. When you will bring your bride together and you will gather all your sheep and we'll celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. That will be a time of great joy. And, and that's something to look forward to and just anticipate. Thank you, Lord, for this afternoon. And uh, my prayer is, is with everyone in this room and in the sound of our voices in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Papa. Please camp in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 this week and be ready to discuss um, spiritual gifts next week in the choir room, Lord willing. Thank you.